going to ask you who have uh, your Bibles with you to join me this morning in Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4 has 19 verses, and so I'm going to read them all to you. I will tell you this, um, you know, they, they don't necessarily give ratings on certain passages, but parental guidance would be suggested on this passage as some of the content uh, is clear and profound and meant to communicate a very strong idea. But listen as I read God's word. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet, let no one contend, and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I have rejected you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. And I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away understanding. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. And they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills. Under oak and poplar and terebinth. Because there is good shade. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Let the, let their, when their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Let's pray. Lord, as we... Uh, take up to open and consider your word, we are always thankful to you that you have given us your word. 
You've told us very clearly also those things that were written down that happened in the former times. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have fallen. So we understand that this is not simply a historic account of things that happened then. But you caused by your spirit this to be written down that it might be useful for us. So Lord we pray that as we take up this passage today. That we would receive the, the warnings, the corrections, the instruction, the encouragement, the guidance. Indeed, the very purpose that you caused it to be written down. God, that it would have its effect on us. God, we are your people. We ask that you would speak to us. Grant, O oh God, again, I plead with you that I would speak faithfully and clearly your word. Give your, your people ears to hear. Grant them a great attentiveness as we look to you to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you probably noted in the reading of that text, once again we are at a time in the history of Israel where things are not as they should be. I mean, the, the, the more commonly you read through the Old Testament, which is tragically left off by so many people these days, when you read through, it is shocking how frequently the children of Israel have put themselves in a position of abandonment of God. He has shown them love. He has shown them care, guidance, provision. He has warned them, chided them, punishment, punished them, called them back delivered them he has just shown his hand and his mercy his faithfulness to his covenant time and time again and the children of israel time and time again turn from him to follow the patterns and practices of other nations really revealing the undeniable reality at the core all men no matter what external or historical privileges they may have, all men at their core are sinful. And they are inclined by nature to follow the desires of their own heart rather than the desires of the one who has made their heart. And God help us to learn from this. And, I, and, and the way that it's worded I think is very helpful. And we'll come to our conclusion at the end. Because it ends with that pack, pass, section that says this. A wind has wrapped them in its wings. And we're going to consider that. But let's, let's look at the unfolding circumstances. The way that this plays out. And the language that's in this passage. Has very strong connections with judicial language. This, this phrase here that's translated in the English Standard Version, version controversy. Some translations can tra translate it, God has a charge against you. This is an indictment. Now, there's a difference. Men might come forward and bring an accusation. And when men bring an accusation against you, what can you possibly do? Deny that accusation. That's not true. I wasn't there. I never did that. I had no part in that. And men's word can vary. And you can argue with men. 
And strangely enough, you can hear this from law enforcement officials. You can have multiple individuals who have been eyewitnesses to particular events and crimes, and yet their accounts differ. They're not identical. Well, which one's right? Well, there's some truth in what this person says, and there's tr some truth in that what that person says. And normally, if there's been a crime and two, three, four people are called in to give a testimony, and all of them say exactly the same thing, you know what's happened? Collusion. They have talked behind the scenes to make their plan of escape. Now, men can hide things, they can work to deceive, they can deny the accusations of other men, but here's the problem. When God comes in and says, I have a charge against you, I have a controversy with you, I have a quarrel with you, I have a case against you, where do you go from there? Now, strangely enough, in the history of Israel, they dare at times to treat God like he's a man. What have we done? We haven't done that. No, we would never. But when God says, this is what you are doing, what's the case? Yeah, it's not up for discussion. This, this, this isn't something that, where he even needs to say, call your witnesses to defend yourself. God judges the guilty without examination. Because he is always the true and faithful witness of everything. Not only of the external, but God even knows our motives behind what we do. Even when we can fool ourselves that our motives were selfless. And serving the good of others. God knows when we're even deceiving ourselves, he is not deceived. I mean, that's it's, it's an amazing notion. We, nobody knows what I was, why I did it except me. Well, do you? Do you really know why you did it? Can you trust your own heart? Our own hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't even know our own hearts. God knows. And God comes to them and he says that he has certain points of contention. Certain points of controversy, and I want us to see. The first thing that he does as he presents his points of controversy with them is he speaks of things that are absent. Now, the things that are absent, obviously, you should deduce from this. These are things he should be seeing. <laughs> these are things that ought to be prevalent. And they're not there. And worse than that, when God comes and says this, it's not just that they're uncommon. They're gone. It's not happening at all. There has been an utter abandonment of it. And at times we, we, we come to understand this. Those are some of the evidences of God's patience and mercy and kindness towards the children of Israel. Why he was oft called slow to anger. Because it wasn't that suddenly overnight, whoa, there's no more faithful people. Where did they go? They were here yesterday. Is that what happened? No. What happens is there's, there's a dwindling and a dwindling until finally, there's just no faithful people to be found. 
And throughout all that time, it's not that God's just sitting back and I'm not going to say anything. I'm just watching. No, he's not doing that. The whole time, he's sending prophets into these people saying, you need to follow God. You need to remember the covenant. You need to remember his faithfulness. You need to remember his law because he is with you. You are his people. You will have to answer to him. This is stated all along. And he comes in there and the things that are absent, he mentions three specific things that are absent. And you can see it there in verse 1. He says, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Three things that are just gone. And what's interesting about these three things that are gone is uh, it, it's almost as if he, he's, he's laid them out in reverse order. Why is there no faithfulness and why is there mo no mercy in the land? It is in effect because there's no knowledge of God in the land. He's going to go on and press the idea throughout this chapter those other elements are secondary. The reason why there's no... Now, some translations says there, say there's no truth. Okay. The, the, the concept here, it, it has a stronger sense than just truth. If there's no knowledge of God in the land, no knowledge of the law in the land, yes, there's going to be no truth. But the, the word that's used here carries a, a distinguishing sense of, of those, those that are firm, solid, reliable, dependable, trustworthy. Where are the faithful men and women? I cannot find them. This word is used in scriptures to refer to God. God is a God of faithfulness. And truth. The, the beauty of this idea of faithfulness is in, in the Hebrew, it's such a poetic and picturesque language, is it is a faithfulness that it has inherent in the terminology a sense of firmness, stability, and steadfastness. So it's not just he generally does what is right. That is a solid man. In the midst of temptation, he stands firm. When the crowd is going the wrong way, she stays faithful. It's that there is a firmness, a solidity, a dependability, and God is looking. Nope. Everyone is wavering. Everyone is tottering. Everyone is compromising. Everyone is going astray. What a tragic thing. And I look at that historically into that situation where God had been so merciful, so powerful in his constant provision and astounding deliverance to them. And yet within the context of his blessings being poured out on them where all was well, they would often enjoy their abundance while abandoning his word and will. What is the condition of men's hearts? Now, this it's amazing. This term faithfulness or truthfulness, firmness, is often in the scriptures combined in sentences with the very next one, which is steadfast love. Now, this is the Hebrew word chesed, which is uncomfortable to pronounce for sure. 
but beyond that, uh, it, it is a word that in the different translations, uh, you have a little bit of fun with it. And when all the different translations present a word slightly different, then you know, wow, this is a pretty complex word. What some people might call or do call a pregnant word. Because it, it's a word that it, it just overflows to other things. Uh, the, the ESV calls it steadfast love. The old King James calls it mercy. Now, we mercy and steadfast love look like two different things. Now, the New American Standard and other translations will call it loving kindness or kindness. Kindness, mercy, steadfast love, they all have quite differing nuances, don't they? And the, 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 I guess the simplest way for us to consider this idea, and it, it's an oft carefully studied word, and it's one of those words that the scholars get to kick each other over all the time, you know, trying to be more, more precise and more historical. But it, it seems like, and the, the challenges are, it is a word that in its context, it is used in different ways. And so to pigeonhole it to one specific meaning is hard to do. It at times speaks of them living out their covenant loyalty to God. No steadfast love in the land. You're not meeting the ter covenant terms that God has placed upon you. That's one sense of it. But it appears in this context, the sense might be even more simple than that. You don't live taking note of the needs and struggles and concerns of those around you. You're living for yourself. There's no mercy. There's no compassion. There's no kindness. You've made it all about you. You know, and so when this word, is, this word is applied to God as mercy and steadfast love, here is the one being who has every right to always and exclusively make everything about him. Couldn't he? But he has chosen not to. He has chosen to set his love upon us and in his own mercy to make much of us, to make us his treasured possession. To treat us as valuable. To incline himself with passion, pity, love, and concern. We are a blessed people. And this term chesed, when it's spoken of towards God's people, is powerful. But look, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The expectation is this. How can he looks and everybody is living for themselves. Nobody is living in a way that, that, that is integrity and faithfulness before God. Concern, pity, and compassion for one another. It's just a self-indulgent, self-filled society. Aren't you thankful that that's a reference to ancient Israel? And there aren't any societies like that today? Anywhere? Or would you disagree with me? We might find societies like that all over the place. And why do we find those societies everywhere? 
Because that's what's at the core of sinful man, that's, that selfishness. And, and they fade away. And part of the reason why they, the children of Israel did not maintain where they ought to be is because there was no knowledge of God. That if they had been continually and faithfully instructed in God, they would know what is right and what is wrong. What is acceptable, what is unacceptable. They would be continually recounting. Because the law, uh, the, when we say the law, that's not just the commandments. That's the, that's the Torah, that's the instruction, that's the first five books of the scriptures. Which accounts so many of God's powerful and merciful acts to the children of Israel. So as they would, if they were continually reflecting on God's mercy to them. He heard their cry when they were in slavery. He delivered them out of that. He heard their cry when they were hungry. He provided food. He heard their cry when they were thirsty. And he provided water out of the rock. He knew their needs. And he caused their clothes and their sandals not to wear out during the entire time of their wandering. God was with them in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. Leading them forward. Guiding them. Protecting them. Eventually he went before them into the land and gave them victory over foes, enemies, more mighty and more numerous than they were. I mean, if they were being told this again and again, you would think, boy, that is a reminder. God has been so merciful. He took thought of us. How dare I not take thought of those in need of help? Those in, in, in need of food, in need of water. Those in need of a little bit of protection against someone who's, who's mistreating them. How dare I not consider others? But when you stop thinking about God, and you stop talking about God, and you stop considering Him from your word, and the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of His word begins to go out, then what ends up happening? See, because listen to what it says in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Uh, wait, are they not destroyed for a lack of faithfulness? Are they not destroyed for a lack of steadfast love? It's the lack of knowledge that led to what? The other lacks. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being priests to me. So the priests are being judged here, those who should be teaching the word to the people. And since you have forgotten the law of your God. Because where is the source of knowledge? How do we have a knowledge of God? Yeah, it's not through our own meditations and musings. We have a knowledge of God through the word that he's delivered to us. So as they turned away from his word, knowledge was lost. As knowledge was lost, faithfulness was lost. Mercy was lost. Now, what's, what's, what I want us to see um, interesting in this is a strong urge for the value and importance of knowledge. Now, this is, uh, uh, there needs to be a resurgence of this because tragically, there, there is a, a, a scope of Christianity that exists in this world that wants to speak of it all as relationship and love and feeling and I, I remember being in an event one time overseas 
where the preacher was saying, we don't need any more theology. What we need is more neology, more prayer. And, and the people all going, amen, yeah. We don't need any more theology. Theology is the truth about God and all that God has made and done as given to us by God. How dare we speak negative on theology? I was speaking with someone recently who was telling me I love history, but I have no interest in doctrine at all. Even the people who have no interest in doctrine at all, it never stops them from having doctrinal opinions. Actually, in my experience, a lot of those who have no interest in doctrine at all hold very firm doctrinal opinions. <laughs> this is what I think we ought to do. This is what I think is pleasing to God. This is what I think is true of the Christian life. They've got all kinds of opinions, which doctrine is simply that which is taught. Uh, I don't, I'm not interested in doctrine. I'm interested in history. Well, history is also something that's taught. But what are you supposed to learn from that history? What are we supposed to know? There's something deeper. Now, so those who would want to set aside knowledge are putting themselves in a dangerous and precarious position. Now, those who would elevate knowledge and then not live according to the things they're learning and worship according to the things they're learning, that's horrible as well. Uh, a system of belief and, and, a, and a practice of religion that's all intellectual is useless. It needs to comprehend the whole man indeed for sure. But I want us to understand this. that There is a, a huge importance of knowledge being iterated here. And look what it says in Romans 10. I want to remind us of this. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is speaking of his brethren according to the flesh. Those are those of Jewish background. Now, technically, we might ask this. The Jews of Jewish background, where do they get their understanding of who God is? Now, that's a challenge because you're wondering, is this a trick question? It might be. In part, you know where they're getting it from? The Word of God. They're getting it from the Scriptures. But here's the challenge. They're not paying attention to all that it has to say. They're clinging to certain things. That's what they, they're, they're recognizing that the Messiah will come. And, and they're seeing the, some promises that the Messiah is going to lead the children of Israel to a to a a new political ascendancy. They will be the head and not the tail. And there's all kinds of practical earthly promises associated with the coming of the Messiah. And so they say, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. While ignoring the fact that you have passages like Isaiah 53, which was read recently here, and, and that speak of the Messiah must come, suffer, and die for the sins of his people. Well, they like the idea of a Messiah who's going to come and make much of them in an earthly way. 
Just bless them and provide for them and make them powerful and popular. They love that. But one who's going to suffer and die and who's going to establish a spiritual kingdom that's not of this world, one in which there will be much persecution and tribulation, well, you know. And so they, they have some degree, but it's not enough. And that danger is even some... Uh, some groups that are tending to go astray today, sometimes they confuse even us genuine believers because we look at them or listen to them on the television. They're using the Bible. I mean, they're using the scriptures. And maybe that's part of the problem. They're using the scriptures. It means for their own purposes ends. They're, they're clinging to some while ignoring others. That's why Paul speaks of his ministry and responsibility is to make the word of God fully known. To declare the whole counsel of God. Every bit of it. Unashamedly all of it. Because here are these, these people of Jewish descent who would have uh, been trained up in certain truths concerning God and his power from the Old Testament scriptures. And he says this of them in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So the people he's talking about here are not saved. What does it say about them? For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Whew. Now, what's, what's challenging about that is their zeal is for who? God. Now, in your my language, wouldn't it be uncomfortable for us to say this person is zealous for God, but not saved? I mean, we'd be uncomfortable to say that. We usually see those things as going together, Paul the Apostle, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can speak of a people who have a form of zeal for God, God as they understand Him, in part while willfully rejecting other parts. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. I'll tell you this, I can't understand anyone who would have knowledge that wouldn't have zeal. There's something amiss there. But there is also a danger in zeal that's not according to knowledge. But we have to be careful, and it can be somewhat deceptive, because just one thought I also want to share with you out of uh, 1 Timothy, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 gives this warning. As we've recently in the morning been considering some of the false teachers and what they do. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, it says this. Certain persons, uh, by swerving from these, that is a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain people, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions. They're talking about all kinds of things, but it's not the things of the Word of God. They're not declaring and expositing and expressing the word of God. You're going to hear a lot of stories. You're going to hear a lot of examples. You're going to hear a lot of different things. But it's getting nowhere. Vain discussions. It's not done. Look what it says. Desiring to be teachers of the law, which you can almost always substitute into those phrases, teachers of the word. They want to be teachers, but what's the problem with these 
individuals who are exhibiting themselves in a teaching capacity who are, but what they're actually doing is accomplishing nothing because it is a vain discussion. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying so they don't even understand what they're saying. And sometimes I listen to these fellas and five minutes afterwards they contradict what they said five minutes ago. You know, and I look around and, and I'm thinking, how come nobody is, is really listening to this guy? Because, I mean, he, he just contradicted himself and now he went back on something he said earlier and, no, without knowing what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. What does that mean? It's hard to tell because when certain of these men teach, they teach with such confidence, such surety. This is the truth. I'll tell you this is the truth. If there's ever been any truth anywhere, any place, any time, this is the truth. Listen to me what I say. This is the truth. And people But if what he's about to say next comes from his own heart and his own mind, it's probably not truth. But it's easy for people to make confident assertions and it's, it's too easy to be led astray and we cannot let that happen. There needs to be a knowledge of God in the land and a faithful knowledge of God, a faithful teaching of God's word is what's going to bring about faithfulness. It's going to bring about mercy. Those are the things that have to be there. When, when the knowledge of God is forsaken, soon truth and soon mercy will also be gone. And in its place, truth and faithfulness will be replaced by personal opinion. Well, that's, I was speaking with somebody recently regarding biblical truths. And he was saying, you know, for some, for some people in this church, that's true for them. And others in this church, that's true for them. No, truth is, they believe that's true and they believe that's true. But it's not truth for them. <laughs> Truth remains objective, given to us by God. What, if somebody believes something to be true that's not true, it doesn't make it truth for them. It makes it a lie or a falsehood that they're believing is true. And this is the dangerous thing. And so we have this strong encouragement and the importance of knowledge. I remind us, at the end of Peter, it says, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just, we want to grow in grace. You know, in, in that rich place in which we stand in the experience of God's favor and kindness that he's bestowed on us and knowledge. We want all of it. All sides of it. This is not what was going on and it was a sad and, and, and difficult situation. Those were the things that were absent. But then in, in, in verse 2 it tells us the things that are abounding in this controversy. Here's the things that are abounding. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Or, the King James, blood toucheth blood. The, 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 now, this isn't a comprehensive list. And the swearing is, the, is, is not the same thing that we consider um, using bad language. 
the swearing in this particular passage is when people would say, as the Lord lives, means by oath committing themselves to do something, or by oath claiming that something that they're saying is true and to be believed when they're lying. <laughs> lying while swearing in God's name. You know, as God lives, believe me. I didn't take your goat and eat it. Well, then, but if, if you're lying, but not only lying, but lying while swearing, making promises to do something, and not only not keeping your promises, but swearing an oath as the Lord lives. Now, when you, someone says, as the Lord lives, which was the common one, and you see it later as you read through this passage, at what point will that not be true? So you say, as the Lord lives, there is no more binding oath that you could bind yourself by. Because that's something that can't change. Everyone else, as the king lives, that may not last. You know, as my father lives, as everyone else, it's going to come to an end. It's a changeable thing. As the Lord lives. That's like the strongest oath that someone can give. And they would do that. And the, the sense there, I guess the, the way that it says there, they break all bounds, really begins to lay it out. And we live in the culture that encourages that. I mean, if you were to ever find yourself in front of a television, it might happen. Commercials run from time to time. Or maybe most of the time commercials run. Other times, programming runs. But if you, if you just tune in to the mottos and mantras of most modern advertisements, they encourage a life that breaks all bounds, right? The motto of one popular shoe company, just do it. Just do it. Just, just whatever it is. Whatever you want to do, yep, just do it. Or certain cars more recently have been advertising. You get this car, you get to live a life without boundaries. Yeah. And, and, it, and that appeals to people. Yeah, just do whatever I want to. Be yourself. Let you be you. You know, as the old crooner would like to say, I did it my way. Is that right? I mean, and, but that's, that's the, it, it's, it, people like to say, well, that, that's, the, that's the modern direction. That's not the modern direction. That has been the direction of men's hearts since age old. You know, people will say, well, that, you, you can see that in modern advertisement, because I just said that, but then I went back to a song that's like from 50 years ago, and you can go back, and you can go back, and you can trace it all the way back, thousands of years into this passage. That's what often appeals to men. Did it my way. And what's, what the scriptures are telling us here, and really we begin to move into this, um, it, it gives us this in... Uh, Hebrews 4.14, at the very end of it, says, A people without understanding shall come to ruin. Listen to the people of contention in this passage. And let me, let me quickly summarize this, because you can see there's warnings in this passage so strongly um, against the priests. 
Verse 4 tells them not to contend against the priests because my contention is with the priests. The people were not supposed to contend against the priests. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 17, they were supposed to go to the priests and the priests were supposed to give them faithful instruction and they were supposed to follow that faithful instruction. But what seemed to have happened at this, at this time, the people have prevailed upon the priests. Don't tell us what to do. Don't press upon us God's word and God's will. We want these things. This is what we like. This is what we want to hear. And so you know what the priests began doing? All right, they don't like it when I give them the law of God. When I tell them what they're doing is, is wrong. So they've asked me instead to tell them about how God provides for them. How God loves them. How he cares for them. How powerful he is. How near he is. And, and not that those things are entirely untrue. And so the priest can begin to... to uh, excuse themselves. I mean, this is true. I mean, God, they're his chosen people. God loves them. He has put them in a special place. But then what happens is they abandon the law. They abandon te teaching people the right thing. And there is an increased compromise. The people themselves, not hearing the word of God, continue to go further astray. And then it goes so far as to say, look at verse 18. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. Actually, poetically there, it's, it says their shields. Now, some translations have left that off entirely. Their shields love shame. Shields being a common way of saying those who are supposed to be their leaders and protectors. So you have their priests who are supposed to be their teachers and guides, not teaching them the truth. You have their political rulers and mayors and, and governors and such. And they are not being the examples that they are supposed to be. And so what do you think is going to be the, the condition of the people? Mm. They have also gone on and into it and compromised. Here's the warning. Go, go Jump briefly with me to chapter 5. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give, give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. You have been a snare at Mizpah and spread a net at Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds, their deeds do not permit them to return to God. Ooh, that's strong language, isn't it? They are so wrapped in their sin they are captive to their sin. Their sin does not even permit them to return to God. They are powerless to return to God because they have given themselves entirely to their sin. This is the people of contention. Priests, kings, people all the way through. And he, and he carries it on with strong warnings. Now look at the punishment for corruption that's being mentioned there. Part of it you see in verse 5, you shall stumble by day. Now again, the, the language is so caught up, Hebrew is so caught up in a poetic language that you've got to picture that. Generally speaking, if you're walking at night and things are dark, the likelihood of you stumbling over something, 
a tree that's fallen down in the path, a chair that's been backed out uh, from the table in the house. The likelihood of you stumbling at night is very high. The likelihood of stumbling in the day is way, way less because I step over it. I step around it because I see it. It's obvious. Well, here, as God's speaking of the judgment here, you will stumble in the day. And your prophets will stumble themselves in the night. It's a, yeah. And the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. So, now again, when you, in that poetry of language, day and night... When you have that book in language, what do you now have? Stumbling, stumbling, stumbling all the time, right? Day and night from priest and prophet, those who you would think you would hear the right word in the right way from, at all times, you don't get it. You get the wrong way. You get the stumbling. And he goes, verse 6 says, I reject you from being a priest to me. I will also reject your children. Verse 5, it said, I will destroy your mother. Verse 9 says, I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. And, and look at verse 17 briefly. It says, Ephraim is joined to idols. And sometimes that's confusing for us because Ephraim is often used in the Old Testament as a metonym. And by saying that, we just got more confusing, didn't we? All right, let's back it up. It means as a single word to refer to a bigger whole. Ephraim at this time was the largest tribe in Israel. And so one way of referring to Israel was just to say Ephraim. Since they were the prevailing dominant tribe of this era in terms of numbers. If you, so when he says Ephraim... That's Israel. And you're going to see that a lot in Old Testament prophecy. So that's helpful. It's not tribe specific. Ephraim is joined to idols. And the next part of the judgment. After all those things. I will destroy your mother. I will forget your children. This is, this is such a simple statement. But such a frightening statement. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Don't go to him anymore. Don't warn him anymore. Done with him. That is a scary thought. That God would say, leave him alone. Have nothing to do with him. <laughs> because judgment is better. <laughs> because judgment is, is, uh, could be discipline and corrective and punishment. But this is coming to the point where, done with you. Whew, that is a heaviness of it. Uh, but I want us to, to then, uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up with what I would call the painful conclusion. Look at verse 19. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed of their sacrifices. They were likened in verse 16 to a, a heifer. Israel is stubborn like a heifer. We had seen already that their deeds do not permit them to return to God. There's two main ways that this section is translated. And both of them, I believe, are, are faithful uh, 
to what's going on here. One is, sometimes the wind is a reference to God's judgment. God has, God has brought their judgment, and there is no way out. There is no escaping God's judgment. Sometimes it's under the phrase, they shall be blown like chaff in the wind. And then that chaff will be gathered and thrown into the furnace. So it can be a reference to God's judgment. And there is judgment of God coming down upon them at this time. And the judgment of God is always inescapable. But the phrasing here looks a little bit stronger than that. And I believe the second meaning is, is the more likely meaning in this particular passage. And wind is often, even in the scriptures, uh, used as a reference to that which is absolutely worthless. That which is absolutely useless. Um, the scriptures, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 13 says that, that the word of the prophets is wind. Which um, you can probably figure out what, what that conveys. It, it, it's, it carries nothing. It carries no value at all. The, the scriptures, uh, about seven or eight times in the book of Ecclesiastes, say this. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, sadly... The old King James there says, a vexation of spirit. <laughs> well, no, that's not. The, this is a way more powerfully poetic. It is a longing and striving. I want, I want the wind. I mean, that, that would be, imagine this. All right, kids, we're going to go outside and play a game. We're going to catch the wind. All right, so go on out there. The first one to catch the wind and bring it here will win a prize. Is that going to work? All right. Generally, I would be surprised if someone could actually catch the wind and ball and then open it. Oh, yeah, you had the wind in that box. It's, it's, it's an endless picture because you go and go and go and go. And you just can't lay hold of it. It just keeps slipping through your hands. And there's no way to grip it. There's no way to grab it. This is the idea. The wind has wrapped you in its wings. You are caught up. And, and even idolatry is called worthlessness. They are worthless. They are a delusion. And so are all that follow them. The idea that wind has wrapped them in its wings they're living for pursuing what means nothing. If you were to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul, what good would that be? Right? And so even if someone gains the whole world, what will they in the end, when judgment comes, find out they really had? All they had amassed, all they had accomplished, all they had gained, all they had achieved, wind. Counts for nothing. The wind had wrapped them in their wings. Their deeds would not permit them to return. Whereas, whereas here's the contrary to that. Instead of letting the wind wrap you in your wings, the scripture often calls the children of God to to come to God as their refuge, and find themselves under the shadow of His wings. 
That's the place where we abide. Under the shadow of his rings. Under his protective care. And under the shadow of his rings, the same terminology. God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt as if on wings of eagles. We have God's protective care. We have God's personal guidance. Those are what, those are the wings that we want. God's care and God's uh, guidance. And that comes to us how? Through the knowledge of God that comes to us how? Through the study of the word of God. And it works within us what? Those graces of his work of the Spirit bringing us to be a faithful people. Bringing us to be a merciful people. Deepening our longing to know more and more about his word. And the ability to look at everything else and say, you know, it's all a lot of wind. I mean, generally, when, if someone were to speak about another person and say, you know that guy? He's full of wind. It's not a compliment. So in this passage, we have four simple thoughts that I'll simply, I'll remind us of. We have the points of controversy, the things that are absent and need to be there, the things that are abundant and shouldn't be there. We have beyond the points of controversy, we have the people of contention and it's everyone, priests, prophets, princes, and all the people, all the inhabitants of the land. We have the punishment for that corruption, and that punishment is severe. Death, ruin, destruction, abandonment. Not to be taken lightly. And we see the painful conclusion. They're trapped. The wind has them wrapped in their wings. Their deeds will not allow them to return. But brothers and sisters, before we close, praise be to God. Because we are not trapped. Isn't that right? The scripture tells us when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. So we look at that and we hang our heads in heaviness and we say, oh no, hopelessness. Oh no, misery. But then we get to look to Christ and we say, oh yes, freedom. Oh yes, power. Oh yes, the grace that I might know and draw near. Where he says, I will, Ephraim, Leave him alone. Christ says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In him, he has come that we might know him and be found in him and have life in him. Where they had no knowledge, we are granted by grace a knowledge through the gospel and then stirred to know more. Oh God, I want to know more. I want to press on to know more. And we don't want to know it just to know it, do we? We want to know it that we might live it out. Not simply so that people would say, oh, that's a faithful, dependable guy. Oh, look at that mercy. No, we want to do that because we want to please him because we see him as glorious. And we want to be like him to those around us. And so we look at that and we say, what a misery. But then we look at Christ and we say, what a glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the privilege of coming to you and, and just hearing it and considering it. Lord, we pray that you would deepen our passion and longing for your word, that we would never be like these people. We pray for so many who, who um, may be in various cultural forms of Christianity. It is not the people that lead 
the priest. It's not even the priest who arbitrate according to their will. It is your word that is to hold sway over your people. God, make us a people of prayer, a people of passion, a people of, who proclaim your word without uh, any equivocation. Lord, we pray that you would stir us up to pursue a deeper knowledge. Lord, and not just to know, but that in knowing we might live. And that you might be pleased and glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.